Let's take a quick stroll down memory lane when we had Trump versus Clinton in 2016. And then I'll explain to you, for those of you watching, thinking, is BCP wearing the same clothes as yesterday? It'll all make sense here in just a moment. But first, let me play you this clip. A blast from the past. Breaking tonight, new fallout from Donald Trump's latest attack on Hillary Clinton. He's taken some heat after bringing up the story of Vince Foster in a recent interview with the Washington Post. Multiple investigations have found that Foster, who worked in the Clinton White House, took his own life. But critics are saying Mr. Trump was trying to suggest something else when he told the Post, quote, whether it's Whitewater or whether it's Vince or whether it's Benghazi, it's always a mess with Hillary. And he went on from there. That's right. That's President Trump, then candidate Trump, very much aware of the Clinton kill list. Now, I am not wearing the same clothes I was wearing yesterday because what's for you yesterday is still today for me. If you watched the or listened to the previous episode, I asked you if you would like me to go down the Clinton kill list rabbit hole. And I thought, you know what? This is so much fun. Let me just do it anyway. And that's what we're going to be doing in this episode. We're going to be looking at some of the more obvious ones like Vince Foster and some of the lesser known ones as well. Strap in. Let's get started. I'm going to play the intro and then we're going to have a flashback to July 20th, 1993. Good afternoon. I have just met with the White House staff um, to basically talk with them a little bit about the death of my friend of 42 years, Vince Foster. It is an immense personal loss to, to me and to Hillary and to many of his close friends here, and a great loss to the White House and to the country. As I tried to explain, especially to the young people on the staff, the, there is really no way to know why these things happen. Oh, we know why these things happen. We know that the Clintons, both Bill and Hillary Clinton, William Jefferson Clinton and Hillary Rodham Clinton. We know what's really going on. They have left a trail of blood behind them. Welcome to the BCP podcast. Big hug to all of y'all. Once again, I'm recording this on the same day as the last one because I'm excited about recording this and going through some of these many, many deaths, mysterious deaths, suicides, and other crazy things that have happened to people associated with the Clintons, also known as the Clinton kill list. We'll get into Vince Foster again here in just a moment, but let me introduce you to some of these deaths. Let me mention some of these deaths, who they are, and what happened to these people, and then we'll get into back into Vince Foster and some other ones like Ron Brown, Seth Rich, and a whole bunch of Clinton bodyguards and Secret Service people that have also seemed to have left this earth a little prematurely. How about James McDougal? 
This is Clinton's convicted Whitewater partner who died of an apparent heart attack while in solitary confinement. And by the way, he was a key witness in Ken Starr's investigation. Hmm. How about Mary Mahoney, a former White House intern who was murdered July 1997 at a Starbucks coffee shop in Georgetown. The murder happened just after she was to go public with her story of sexual harassment in the White House. Hmm, sexual harassment in the White House. Sexual impropriety by Bill Clinton in the White House. From what we're going to see, Monica Lewinsky is lucky to be alive. Mary Catron Mahoney was born on July 22, 1972, to Mary and Patrick Mahoney in Baltimore, Maryland. She was known by her friends and family as Katie. Mahoney attended the McDonough School in Owen Mills, Maryland, and then transferred to Fordham University. During this time, Mahoney became active in politics. She worked on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign, and then landed a White House internship in the spring of 1993. Mary Mahoney worked in the public liaison office of the White House, under Deputy Director Doris Matsui. After her internship, Mary Mahoney transferred to Towson University. Mahoney then moved to Washington, D.C. and began working at a Starbucks in Georgetown, about two miles from the White House. She was promoted to assistant manager in May of 1997. Around this time, a scandal was brewing at the White House. On May 27th, the Supreme Court ruled in the civil case of Paula Jones versus President Bill Clinton. Jones had previously sued Clinton for sexual harassment that allegedly occurred during his time as governor of Arkansas. The president's defense argued that he could not be sued in federal court while he was the sitting president, and the Supreme Court denied this argument in a landmark ruling, allowing the lawsuit to proceed. Paula Jones's lawyers wanted to show a pattern of sexual misconduct on the part of Bill Clinton, so they began issuing subpoenas to other women they suspected of having sexual encounters with Clinton. Two days later, former Clinton White House intern Mary Mahoney reported to her closing shift as assistant manager of the Starbucks coffee shop, two miles from the White House. This Starbucks location was reportedly patronized by many in the White House inner circle, including Chelsea Clinton, George Stephanopoulos, and Monica Lewinsky. Mahoney and her two colleagues closed the shop at 8 p.m., locked the doors, and began their nightly cleanup routine. When the opening shift leader arrived the next morning, she noticed Mahoney's car still in the parking lot with a flat tire. She also noticed the music and lights were still on in the store and the cleaning was incomplete. When she got to the back room, she found the lifeless bodies of her three colleagues, Mary Mahoney, Emery Evans, and Aaron Goodrich. Now, if you've got critical thinking skills, you'll probably say, okay, James, BCP, this might be a stretch because, you know, DC is dangerous. Well, DC wasn't as dangerous back in 1997 and 1998 that it has become. And Georgetown, specifically, wasn't that dangerous. News of these murders came as a shock to the Georgetown community, an area where violent crime was rare at the time. DC Councilman Jack Evans told reporters, to have a triple murder anywhere is unusual, even in DC. But in Georgetown, we've never had one before. Georgetown has not even had a homicide in a year and a half. 
there were no reports of witnesses hearing gunshots in the crowded metropolitan neighborhood, despite multiple witnesses being in the area immediately before and after the murders. Okay, well, maybe it was a robbery. You know, like Seth Rich. Nope. This has a lot of similarities to the Seth Rich murder. Police found that no money had been taken from the store, and the safe containing over $10,000 was left untouched. Mary Mahoney had been shot five times, Evans three times, and Goodrich once. Detectives' original theory was that Mahoney was the target and that the killing was personal. Now, a Mr. Cooper went down and is in prison for this murder, even though he originally said he didn't do it, and there's all kinds of funky business with his admission and then his recanting and then his admission. The whole thing's a mess. But we're talking about the kill here. We're not going through the process of this crime and how they railroaded a black man to be the fall guy for this. So there's another tangential death in this murder of Miss Mahoney. And that is a potential witness to the murder. A drug addict who died a wrongful death because the police didn't protect him. A former drug addict named Eric Butera told the police he had overheard people talking about the Starbucks killing in a crack house. In December 1997, DC police sent Eric Butera back to the house to make a drug buy so they could obtain a search warrant. Butera was turned away at the crack house and then jumped by three men who beat him to death. Butera's family was later awarded $1.1 million in a civil case against the D.C. police. Now, in this Clinton body count kill list that I'm going through, number three after James McDougal and Mary Mahoney is Vince Foster. There is quite a bit of information about Vince Foster, so we'll skip that for now and may come back to it at the end of this episode. As is there a lot of information about Ron Brown as well. We'll get to that as well a little bit later. But how about C. Victor Razor II and Montgomery Razor? Major players in the fundraising world of the Clinton organization. They both died in a private plane crash in July 1992. How about Paul Tully? A Democrat National Committee political director found dead in a hotel room in Little Rock, Arkansas in September of 1992, described by Clinton as a dear friend and trusted advisor. That's a lot of deaths in 1992 and 1993 alone surrounding the Clintons. How about Ed Willey, another Clinton fundraiser, found dead in November of 1993, deep in the woods in Virginia of a gunshot wound to the head, and it was ruled a suicide. Ed Willey died on the same day his wife Kathleen Willey claimed Bill Clinton groped her in the Oval Office in the White House. Ed Willey was involved in several Clinton fundraising events. Now, we haven't gotten a Vince Foster yet, but another death in the woods or in a wooded area claimed to be a suicide. All right, how about Jerry Parks, head of Clinton's gubernatorial security team in Little Rock? Gunned down in his own car, at a deserted intersection outside Little Rock. Park's son said his father was building a dossier on Clinton. He allegedly threatened to reveal this information. After he died, 
the files were mysteriously removed from his house. Now let's go to this gun down in his car that Jerry Parks happened. That, that happened to Jerry Parks. It's not just suicide, but a crazy violent deaths that seem to surround the Clintons. Now this next death was very violent and is not really considered part of the Clinton kill list. But since we're talking about the violent deaths of women that have worked for the Clintons, I thought I'd throw this in here. Alif Yavuz had a brilliant career ahead of her, a baby on the way in two weeks, until terrorists took it all away. Alif and her husband were walking in Nairobi's Westgate Mall when terrorists attacked. They were both killed, along with the child. I'm a little choked up because I, I just got off the phone with her mother. Alif graduated from Johns Hopkins University, worked for the World Bank, and then joined the Clinton Foundation. She was living in Tanzania, researching vaccines for malaria and HIV. All right, so let's get back to this list that I'm working with. Next is James Bunch, died from a gunshot suicide. It was reported that he had a black book of people which contained names of influential people who visited prostitutes in Texas and Arkansas. Then we have James Wilson, who was found dead in May of 1993 from an apparent hanging suicide. He was reported to have ties to Whitewater. Then we have Kathy Ferguson, the ex-wife of Arkansas trooper Danny Ferguson, who was found dead in May of 1994 in her living room with a gunshot to her head. It was ruled a suicide, even though there were several packed suitcases as if she were going somewhere. Danny Ferguson was a co-defendant along with Bill Clinton in the Paula Jones lawsuit. Kathy Ferguson was, was a possible corroborator uh, with uh, or for Paula Jones uh, as a witness. Then we have Bill Shelton, Arkansas State Trooper and fiancé of Kathy Ferguson, Critical of the suicide ruling of his fiance, he was found dead in June of 1994 of a gunshot wound, also ruled a suicide at the gravesite of his fiance. Then we have Gandhi Ball, attorney for Clinton's friend Dan Lasseter, who died by jumping out of a window of a tall building in January of 1994. His client was a convicted uh, drug distributor. How about Florence Martin? accountant and subcontractor for the CAA, was related to the Barry Seal Mena Airport drug smuggling case. He died of three gunshot wounds. We haven't even gotten into the Mena uh, drug running and the CIA operations that allowed President Clinton to become President Clinton as he was buddy-buddy with George W. He facilitated the, uh, uh, the, the drug trafficking from South America into Arkansas for distribution. People who knew about this, it cost them their lives. Paula Grober, Clinton's speech interpreter for the deaf from 1978 until her death on December 9th of 1992. She died in a one-car accident. That one might actually be a legitimate one. Who knows? Danny uh, Casolaro, investigative reporter investigating the Mena Airport and Arkansas Development Finance Authority, he slid his wrist apparently in the middle of his investigation. He got too close. Paul Wilker, attorney investigating corruption at Mena Airport with Casolaro and the 1980 October surprise, was found dead on the toilet 
June 22, 1993, in his Washington, D.C. apartment. He had delivered a report to Janet Reno three weeks before his death. John Parnell Walker, Whitewater investigator for Resolution Trust Corp., jumped to his death from Arlington, Virginia apartment balcony on August 15, 1993. He was investigating the Morgan Guarantee scandal. A lot of investigators seem to just want to die. Barbara Wise, Commerce Department staffer, worked closely with Ron Brown and John Wang. Cause of death unknown, died November 29, 1996. Her bruised nudist body was found locked in her office at the Department of Commerce because a new... A, a, a nude, bruised body in the Department of Commerce office with the death of uh, cause of death still unknown is absolutely not in any way, shape, or form suspicious. Charles Meisner, Assistant Secretary of Commerce, who gave John Huang special security clearance, died shortly thereafter in a small plane crash. Dr. Stanley Hurd, Chairman of the National Chiropractic Healthcare Advisory Committee, died with his attorney Steve Dixon in a small plane crash as well. Dr. Hurd, in addition to serving on Clinton's advisory council, personally treated Clinton's mother, stepfather, and brother. Barry Seal, drug-running pilot out of Mena, Arkansas, death was no accident. There's a great movie about Barry Seal uh, uh, with Tom Cruise, and I think Tom Cruise produced the movie, played in it, uh, and what have you. Infamous drug smuggler Barry Seal gained international attention for his exploits, even being portrayed in a film starring Tom Cruise. I'm gonna walk out of here. I'm gonna walk out of here. DA, back away from the truck with your hands in the air. Drop the fuck, shithead! Drop your hands! Nice and high! You know who I am, Mr. Seal? No, ma'am. I'm Dana Sabota, State Attorney General. You've got DEA, ATF, FBI, all wanting their pound of flesh. Yes, ma'am, it's, it's quite a room. Yeah. Well, you hit to trifecta, didn't you? I mean, guns, drugs, money laundering. And the state of Arkansas is going to rip the bark right off of you, boy. We are going to put you in a four-by-six cell for the rest of your life. Maybe that's a long time. Yeah. Miss Sabota, I have Governor Clinton on the line. He says it's urgent. Governor. It's a governor. Put him through. Clear the room, take him with you. Yeah. What do you need, Bill? I'm gonna walk out of here. I'm gonna walk out of here. There ain't a damn thing any one of you can do about it. Do it. Wait, 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 wait a no, minute, huh? No, no, he's free to go, boys. What the hell do you mean he's free to go? Can you explain what's going on here? He's free to go. Free to go? I'll be seeing you, Seal. Ma'am. Uh, the camera was mounted here on this bulkhead. 
Barry Seal is known for being a famous drug dealer, smuggling hundreds of thousands of dollars of cocaine into the United States. Today, he is a huge figure in pop culture. While many only know him as a famous drug dealer and a character portrayed in movies. Katie, you meet Barry Seal. That's right. Uh, Barry Seal was a drug smuggler as well. Uh, a movie called American Made, starring Tom Cruise, was made about him later on in 2017. And the reason why Arkansas was a safe place for him was because he was friends with Bill Clinton, who at the time was the governor of Arkansas. And he wasn't, when he wasn't a governor, he was still the strong man there. Right. So according to your book... Uh, Barry Seal paid millions in bribes to the Clintons to allow him to actually land the cocaine in Mena, Arkansas. Each load, I paid $50,000, supposedly, to somebody at the top. And he said, I'm going to have supper with the, with the governor tonight. That's all he would say, never. Okay, so it's not like he said that he was bribing it, Bill Clinton. He didn't say it. He kind of inferred it in a way? Yeah, completely, yes. Okay. I cannot get caught. And we look back on what happened, we see that he couldn't get caught. Yeah. Okay, and at one point, Barry was, you know, was being paid a million dollars per flight? Yes, exactly. He would get, he would get, uh, he got $2,000 a kilo, so 500 kilos is a million dollars, yes. Once they caught up to... Uh, to Barry Seal, well, they had to protect Bill Clinton, and Barry Seal was whacked. It's been 35 years since three people were convicted of his murder. Let's return to the Clinton kill list. You didn't have to run drugs and pay Bill Clinton. You didn't have to work for Bill Clinton. Sometimes it was just bad luck that got you into the Clinton kill list. Johnny Lawhorn Jr., a mechanic, found a checkmate out to Bill Clinton in the trunk of a car left at his repair shop. He was found dead after his car hit a utility pole. Stanley Huggins investigated Madison Guarantee. His death was a purported suicide and his report was never released. By the way, have I mentioned that if you were in the Clinton sphere, it's probably not a good idea to fly planes or be a Passenger on a plane. Herschel Friday, attorney and Clinton fundraiser, or be a Clinton fundraiser, died March 1st, 1994, when his plane exploded. It's also not a good idea to accidentally, like the mechanic, find yourself inadvertently in the middle of a Clinton operation. Kevin Ives and Don Henry, known as the boys on the track case, Reports say the boys may have stumbled upon the Mena, Arkansas airport drug operation. A controversial case, the initial report of death said due to the falling asleep on railroad tracks. Later reports claim the two boys have been slain before being placed on the tracks. Many links to the case died before their testimony could become could come before a grand jury. The following persons had information on the Ives-Henry case. Keith Coney died when his motorcycle slammed into the back of a truck in 88. We're going back to pre-President Clinton here. Keith McCaskill died stabbed 113 times in November of 88. Gregory Collins died from a gunshot wound January 1989. Jeff Rhodes, he was shot, mutilated, and found burned in a trash dump in April 1989. 
James Milan found decapitated. However, the coroner ruled his death was due to natural causes because it's natural for your head to be decapitated. I guess if your head is decapitated, you're going to die of the natural cause of if you have no head, you cannot live. Jordan Kettleson was found shot to death in the front seat of his pickup truck in June of 1990. Richard Winters, a suspect in the Ives-Henry deaths, he was killed in a setup robbery July of 1989. Breaking tonight, new fallout from Donald Trump's latest attack on Hillary Clinton. He's taken some heat after bringing up the story of Vince Foster. All right, now let's go back to the number three person on this list. Let's go back to Vince Foster. This is one that has been much studied, much investigated, much reported on, and has gotten probably more attention than any other death on the Clinton kill list. Probably that, I would say, and Seth Rich. Donald Trump went on to say, I'm not, it's one of those, like, I'm not saying it. But I didn't. Other right. people are saying that Vince Foster was murdered. I wouldn't say it, but other people are saying that, and that's bad for Hillary. But just set the stage. So Vince Foster worked with the Clintons. He worked for the Clintons. He helped her become a partner at the Rose Law Firm. So they were, they were friends. And then he killed himself, leaving behind a widow and three kids. And it is very important that his life not be judged simply by how it ended, because Vince Foster was a wonderful man in every way. Uh, and because no one can know why things like this happen. I mean, I've heard this rumor before that somehow she's responsible for his death or she had him murdered. I mean, you know, you go to the craziest part portions of the Internet, you'll hear anything. Very serious, he said, very serious concerns, very fishy, he said. And then he also uh, put the sort of, you can hear the raised eyebrow almost coming in when he says, you know, he knew all of this stuff. He's right in the middle of everything. And then, boom, he commits suicide, huh? And he and he leaves that hanging. And it is all the way back to 1993. This is the same thing that we heard in 1993. Why, why do people continue to say this? So the way that it works, so he's 48, father of three. He had been really a big deal and considered a white knight, a good guy in Arkansas. And he was Hillary Clinton's mentor at the Rose Law Firm. He comes to Washington to help them out. He's put in his deputy White House counsel. He's doing the stuff there, but he is coming unwound, and everybody says so. And that's why people think that they say he was covering something up, or the Clintons were covering something up. He knew and was going to blow the whistle on it, and that that's why, says the Internet, uh, something more happened. Oh, a lot more than just something happened. There was quite a few interesting things about Vince Foster's suicide. I'm going to try to edit it down as succinctly as I can some of the bullet points in the very shady death of Vince Foster. Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries. A team of handwriting experts reaches a stunning and controversial conclusion about the suicide note of White House advisor Vince Foster. That's right, folks. Remember Robert Stack's Unsolved Mysteries? Vincent Foster's death slash suicide got a lot of attention throughout the country and the world, including on this very popular show. Our next story concerns the controversial suicide of a high-powered Washington attorney. 
It threatens to become one of the biggest political scandals of our time. It began with a somber announcement and remains for many an unsolved mystery. I have just met with the White House staff um, to basically talk with them a little bit about the death of my friend of 42 years, Vince Foster. On July 20th, 1993, the country was shocked by the unexpected death of 48-year-old Vincent W. Foster, White House deputy counsel and close personal confidant of the Clintons. Foster was found dead in Fort Marcy Park across the Potomac River from Washington. He had been shot once in the head. The wound was apparently self-inflicted. At the time of his death, Vince Foster had become a central figure in the growing Whitewater scandal. Two separate investigations by the United States Park Police and by the FBI for independent counsel, Robert Fisk, concluded that Foster had indeed taken his own life. Vince Foster had been a close friend of Bill Clinton's in their boyhood town of Hope, Arkansas. As deputy White House counsel for the Clinton administration, Foster became the highest ranking U.S. government official to die under mysterious circumstances since President John F. Kennedy. He, more than anyone else, knew the financial secrets of both the campaign of 1992 and the Clinton presidency, just as he knew the secrets of the Rose Law Firm and of Hillary Rodham Clinton's business and financial dealings over the previous decade. Dealings that would become the subject of numerous investigations. On July 22nd, Foster's briefcase was searched twice by Bernard Nussbaum in the presence of Justice Department officials and the U.S. Park Police. Four days later, a suicide note mysteriously appeared in the briefcase. It was torn into 28 pieces with one piece missing. No fingerprints were found on the note, only a partial palm print of Nussbaum's. Perhaps inevitably, in a case with serious political ramifications, there were serious doubts concerning Foster's suicide. Some of the most controversial reports were published in the conservative Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Vince Foster was the highest federal official to die under suspicious circumstances since the death of President Kennedy. I don't push a non-suicide theory. I have never said Vince Foster was murdered. I have said that Police are trained to treat every suicide, no matter how apparently, as a homicide, as a murder first, until the facts prove otherwise. What is clear in this case is that police procedure was never followed. For Christopher Ruddy and many others, one of the keys to this case is an unsigned suicide note allegedly written by Vince Foster. This is a copy of the reconstructed note, which when found had been ripped into 28 pieces. It read in part, I made mistakes from ignorance, inexperience, and overwork. I did not knowingly violate any law or standard of conduct. No one in the White House, to my knowledge, violated any law or standard of conduct. I was not meant for the job or the spotlight of public life in Washington. Here, ruining people is considered sport. Distinguished handwriting experts were contacted, the most famous being Dr. Reginald Alton of Oxford University in England. The note, he said, was a fake. It was the work of a forger. The shredded note was found in Foster's briefcase four days after his death. Curiously, White House counsel Bernard Nussbaum had earlier inspected the contents of the briefcase but didn't find the note. 
This led to widespread skepticism concerning the document's authenticity. On October 25, 1995, a team of well-known handwriting experts held a press conference in Washington. They had been hired by the editor of an independent financial newsletter. Each of the experts had examined a photocopy of the alleged suicide note and concluded that it was a forgery. The death of Vince Foster was suddenly cast in a whole new light. If the note was forged, was it part of a cover-up by the Clinton administration? Or was it evidence that Vince Foster had been murdered? Is there any substance to the claim that the suicide note was forged? The experts believe that the forger studied an existing document handwritten by Vince Foster and then copied his writing style letter by letter. Vince Foster had a lot of shady things, not just the suicide note, but also the medical examiner's report, the shooting, the placement of the body, and the gun. The medical examiner at the scene was Dr. Holly. After examining Foster's body, he made reference to a wound on Foster's neck on page two of his report. This finding was in agreement with two of the rescue workers who testified before the Whitewater Grand Jury that they too saw a gunshot wound on Foster's neck. Incredibly, in the official autopsy report on Vincent Foster, a gunshot wound to the head is listed, but the wound on the neck is completely left out. Paramedics Corey Ashford and Roger Harrison put the body in a bag for transport to the morgue, yet neither of them saw an exit wound or any blood either on the body or on the ground beneath the body. This was in agreement with Dr. Hout, who examined the body at the scene and wrote in his report that the wound was mouth to neck. Paramedic Todd Hall was one of the first to arrive. He testified before the grand jury that he saw two men running away from the scene into the woods. Paramedic Richard Arthur, who had attended to 25 to 30 gunshot deaths in his nine years as a rescue worker, believed it was a homicide. I've just never seen a body line so perfectly straight, he said. His colleague, Corey Ashford, also had coded the death as a homicide. The crime scene at Fort Marcy Park had been staged, that the gun had most likely been planted in Foster's hand, and that a crucial photograph of Foster's neck and head had been falsified. A Park Police Polaroid shows a 38 Colt revolver hooked on Foster's thumb. It was made from parts of at least two separate weapons, and it had two different serial numbers. A 38 Special has a fierce recoil and can throw one's hand back over their head. However, the large sight on the gun did not damage Foster's teeth or gum tissue, and the gun was neatly at his side. Residents of homes as close as 300 yards away were never interviewed by the park police as to whether they had heard a gunshot. The bullet was never found. Two homicide detectives who performed their own two-month investigation into the Foster case concluded that the crime scene had likely been staged, with the gun placed in Foster's hand to make it look like a suicide. This report, funded by the Western Journalism Center in California, was prepared by Vincent Scalise and Fred Santucci, both veteran homicide experts from the New York City Police Department. Now, I want to show you one last clip having to do with Vince Foster's suicide. And tell me if you don't see similarities between this story that you're going to hear from Larry King, who
who happened to be doing a live interview with Bill Clinton when Vince Foster committed suicide or killed himself or was whacked. And tell me if you don't see similarities between that and when George W. happened to be on TV at a school during 9-11 as if to give them cover or an alibi. Now, not that they were the ones involved in the murder or in the case of George W. Bush, mass casualties, terrorism, and one of the biggest acts of treason in American history, but to give them cover that they were blindsided, that they were doing their job, that they were doing their normal functions as president when they were stricken with this surprise news. That doesn't make any sense to you yet. Let me play this flashback of from Larry King about what happened the day that he found out that Vince Foster was murdered. But he doesn't call it Vince Foster being murdered. He calls it suicide. I was in the White House with Clinton when Vince Foster killed himself. Clinton and really? I were the only two people that didn't know it happened. Great story on that. Not an inaugural story, but a great story. I'm interviewing Clinton, live from the White House, and I say to him on the first break, want to stay an extra half hour? And he says, sure. So I announce to the audience, the president will stay until 10.30 Eastern. Normally we leave at 10. And everybody's happy about it. And then on the second break, one of the producers comes in my ear and says, cut it off at 10. Doesn't give me the reason. We'll tell you why later. Cut it off at 10. So now I announce, well, we have to leave at 10. And Clinton goes, like this. We'll be off at 10. Uh, the president has some of the message. He's looking, like, what the hell is going on, right? What the hell is going on? And he wants to stay. Right. I don't know what's going on. So I close the show, and I thank him very much. And then they come over and tell him, and he ran out to go to Vince Foster's widow's house. And um, George Stephanopoulos told me that... Uh, that Vince Foster had killed himself. And what they were worried about is we were going to take calls for the president, is uh -oh. that someone would have heard a police call and had broken on the air to tell the president of the suicide of, of one of his top aides. That would have, so that they, were, they were afraid that someone would get through. All right. And now let's end with another portion of the list, and then we'll end with the most recent famous unsolved Clinton murder, that of Seth Rich. But going back to the list here, here's what we have. We have a list of Clinton bodyguards who are dead. Major Williams Barkley, Captain Scott Reynolds, Brian Hanley, Sergeant Tim Sable, Major General William Robertson, Colonel William Densberger, Colonel Robert Kelly, Special uh, Specialist Gary Rhodes, Steve Willis, Robert Williams, Conway LeBlu, and Todd McKeehan. And then the WikiLeaks leaker, Seth Rich. 
It's a murder mystery involving a young Omaha native that has grabbed national attention. Someone shot and killed 27-year-old Seth Rich last summer as he was walking home in Washington, D.C. He worked for the Democratic National Committee. Police have very few clues to go on. And there goes the internet. Hillary personally had Seth killed for being the leaker, just like she did with all those others she supposedly had murdered in the 1990s. Seth Rich was murdered. While the family grieves the loss of their son, they're also dealing with pressures out of their control. It's definitely not a cold case, nor will it ever be. Mary and Joel Rich want answers to their son Seth's murder, but right now police don't have any. Our son's dead. There are two murderers running wild. And these two murderers are people that shot a kid in the back. In the early morning hours of July 10th, 2016, D.C. Metro Police found Rich lying on the ground, shot twice in the back. He later died at a hospital. The attack happened here early Sunday morning. 27-year-old Seth Rich, seen here in his LinkedIn profile picture, murdered as he walked in a neighborhood he called home. Seth Rich was shot twice in the back in what police said looked like a botched robbery. He was taken to hospital but died two hours later, just one of 139 murders in the D.C. area last year. Still, the death of somebody linked to Hillary Clinton's campaign was enough to set the internet alight with theories about what might have really happened. Not only are the Riches grieving their son's murder, they're also having a deal with speculation and rumors about his death. Everything from working with WikiLeaks to releasing DNC emails to the Clintons killing him and now the Russians killed Rich. WikiLeaks added to the speculation by offering up a $20,000 reward to help find Seth's killer. New Zealand internet entrepreneur Kim.com weighed in on Twitter claiming to have known Seth Rich and saying Seth was the source for WikiLeaks. In August, WikiLeaks offered a $20,000 reward and then on Dutch television, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange suggested that Rich was his source for the Democrats' emails. I'm suggesting that our sources uh, take risks and they, are, they become concerned uh, to see things occurring uh, like that. But was he one uh, of your sources then? I mean... We don't comment on who our sources but are. Why but why make the suggestion? about a young guy being shot in the streets of Washington? Because uh, we have to understand uh, how high the stakes are uh, in the United States. New information from the family's private investigator suggests there is tangible evidence on Seth Rich's laptop that confirms he was communicating with WikiLeaks prior to his death. Now the question is, why has DC police, as the lead agency on the investigation for the past 10 months, insisted this was a botched robbery when till this day there is no evidence to suggest that? I believe that the answer to solving his death lies on that computer, which I believe is either at the police department or either at, at the FBI. I've been told both. But you have sources at the FBI saying that there is information... For sure. For sure. Wheeler says there is evidence of email exchanges between Seth Rich and WikiLeaks and Fox went on to claim that Rich's computer showed more than 44,000 DNC emails and 17,000 attachments sent to somebody linked to WikiLeaks. What are your thoughts on the Clinton body count? Or as I used to call it on YouTube, the Clinton kill list. I'll be back.
with more reporting. Thanks for joining me here on the BCP Podcast. Thank you.